Hello, my name is Lawrence Woodruff, and my wife and I enjoyed the art fair last week. And I'm Michael Ralph, and my wife and I are pumped for the new season of Great British Bake Off. Professional development requires ongoing reflection and dialogue. So join us as we spend our Saturday discussing education research and drinking beer. Today we are drinking Dragon's Milk Reserve number two of 2022 from the New Holland Brewery. You said New Holland, uh, New Holland's Dragon's Milk Reserve. Which reserve is it? Yeah, so I didn't understand that they actually had four reserves released this year. And uh, that, I just said, oh, reserve, that's special. Let I'm going to get it. And then that put us in a little complication because I wanted to get some feedback from Aaron Matthew our beer advisor, but uh, I didn't communicate properly which one it was. This is reserve number two of year 2022. It is a bourbon barrel aged stout with waffle cookies, coffee, caramel, and cinnamon. I wonder if I thought of the Great British Bake Off reference in the intro because we just watched an episode from several seasons ago when they made waffles. So I actually know what that is and the history of making it. Um, it definitely smells like a bourbon barrel aged something, which is among my favorites. And I am pumped for this just as much as new television. What are we doing today, Mr. Ralph? The theories about teaching students according to learning styles have been debunked in research, but the idea has been difficult to interrupt in practice. We read a new paper focused on helping teachers move on from old thinking related to learning styles with more productive contemporary research. Later, we look at a listener recommendation focused on helping students think about how they view their own learning in order to promote more effective practices among students. Let's get started. For our first segment, we read the learning styles hypothesis is false but there are patterns of student characteristics that are useful. This was written by Daniel Dinsmore, Luke Fryer, and Megan Parkinson. This was published in Theory into Practice in 2022. I saw some discussion of this recent publication on my social media, and particularly a number of researchers expressing gratitude that the critique of the mistaken learning styles hypothesis is something that has been around for what 15 years 20 years now we we have we as a research landscape have come to the consensus that evidence does not support tailoring instruction to students learning styles so when we say learning styles and when the authors here talk about the learning styles hypothesis that is shorthand for that idea of matching there's a broader conversation about how different learners are different one of the problems with learning styles that makes it so um, appealing is also one of the problems that makes it false and that is it is an oversimplification the idea of ex experiences with ideas from multiple perspectives is valuable. And so any approach to instruction or learning that attempts to narrow that experience to one modality, one type of experience, one approach is less productive 
than helping students have experiences with ideas from multiple different perspectives, seeing, touching, discussing all of these different approaches, which are complementary to one another, light up different parts of our brains, which we saw some really cool fMRI pictures about that in this past episode. And lighting up multiple parts of our brains in different ways leads to better, more robust, more durable learning. This paper does a great job um, describing why the learning styles hypothesis is so persistent um, in our education spaces. And I think that understanding that can help us um, look toward other avenues for um, informing our practice. So one of them was that we mentioned it a little bit ago that it's it's very simple. The learning hypothesis is very simple. And that is attractive because teaching is very, very hard. When we can find something that simplifies this job, career, profession, calling, whatever, however you identify with it, when we find something that simplifies it, it feels so relieving to us. And when teachers see, oh my gosh, my kids struggle because in my classroom, because they're auditory learners and all I have them do is read, I, this is it. I can, this is a simple sounding solution and it's relieving to us. Uh, and so we we gravitate toward it. We appreciate it. And then there's the second problem is that when solutions are easy, they're, when so solutions sound easy, they're easy to sell. And when you create a market of products supporting the endeavor, here are lessons for auditory learners. Here are lessons for visual learners. Here are lessons for kinesthetic learners. You can acquire these either for yourself in your classroom or your district can acquire them or your building can acquire them. And then you can execute them. Then it will make your life easier. The existence of a market creates a sense of validity of the concept. It was a popular solution to a lot of educational complexities. So it, teacher education programs in the 90s and early 2000s uh, continued to uh, promote this as a uh, effective basis for uh, instructional planning. Yeah, and that's uh, that's something that I think about. I I was trained, I was trained in my teacher program in the aughts, and my particular teacher training program was heavily focused on domain expertise and domain practice, and for me, science and biology practice in particular. And so I would imagine because those teachers and those instructors and those professors were both so steeped in the existing research and also focused on uh, domain specific practice that I didn't get much. I don't know that I got any exposure to learning styles, uh, good, bad, or otherwise. I don't think we talked about it at all. We were focused on domain specific practices. And so when I showed up in the classroom, I was like, yeah, learning styles, who cares? I don't, I don't know about all that, but that wasn't the experience of a great many teachers. I graduated in 2011 with a Master's of Art of Teaching and Secondary Science Education, and the research that began to challenge the validity of the, this hypothesis started coming out in around 2008. And so my instructors told me, hey, there's this thing out there that's pretty popular, but it, it's pretty shaky. You might want to keep your eye on it. It might not be the best thing to base your instruction out of. So I was a little wary about learning styles when I came into the classroom, uh, but when you are a new teacher and you are, uh, I mean, teaching is brutal and the first year is devastating. Any way you can 
find support, guidance, uh, uh, any kind of strategy to help you navigate the complexities is appealing. So one of the reasons why this, this sticks around is because new teachers who are in over their head, even if they didn't learn about this in current education practices, are being mentored by teachers and are looking up to teachers that have been doing this for 25 years. And I think it reinforces the idea that there is no best practice. This idea of a static uh, carved in stone research supported practice is, is its own myth. And so it, it's not to say that teaching in alignment to learning styles, when, if I were, would have learned it in 1995, like that, that was a research aligned practice in 1995 and right. that's fine, but it's not now. And so we have to move forward and we have to continue to revise and improve because that in my head is one of the essential characteristics of research aligned practices. Yeah, and so they make three uh, pretty concrete recommendations. The first one I struggled with initially, um, and then had had some really satisfying uh, thought process. The first one I struggled with initially, which was basically prior knowledge really matters. And I struggled because my first reaction was, okay, if I want my students to do better, I should have them know more before they get here. And I don't have that ability as a teacher. I can't, I can't deal with that. Um, however, we can attend to students' prior knowledge and make explicit linkages to students' prior knowledge throughout our instruction, which can include perhaps pretests, which is something I know you're really excited about. I am super excited about pretests this year. We read some research last season that said that, hey, uh, pretests, if you're doing retrieval, you can really get some oomph out of this by adding some pretests uh, to it. And, uh, you know, with just a few stipulations, like you leave no answers blank. And um, you really, really push yourself to create a response to these questions when you don't know. No, no IDKs, no, no making stuff, no making, no, like try to make it sciencey in my science classroom, like guesses uh, that puts skin in the game for the rest of the unit. Uh, and then I've had this experience where I give those pretests back at the end of the unit. None of this was for points. None of this was for credit. And they got so excited about correcting their pretests. Uh, and then I could let them have it, which to them made them feel good because it felt like a study guide. But they were able to correct it without needing a study guide. Like they, they, oh, we're at the end of the unit and I know these things now. Uh, and it was really, really exciting. Um, it helped me recognize, looking at those helped me recognize what I need to emphasize and what I can just breeze by because the students in the class know it versus the students in the class do not know it. It was very satisfying. It is great. I'm so glad you're doing that. I'm glad you're having that experience. Yeah, it's, it's very great. The, so the authors lay out, if we're going to attend to students' prior knowledge, you know, this robust and engagement with pretests is one option. They spend some time talking about differentiation, and there's a full there's a whole body of literature supporting how great differentiation is, and I'm pretty sure we've, we've got the tape of our own talking about differentiation. There was one thing that did give me pause. The authors talk about um, the, you know, the dire need for more assessments that are valid and reliable for um, for engaging students' prior knowledge. And that one, honestly, as a professional who spends a fair amount of his time and has considerable training thinking about validity and reliability, I was like, no, that's not actually, that is a definitely an issue for research. 
Yeah. We, like we need those as research instruments. But as far as like in the classroom, nothing you have described has concerned itself at all with validity or reliability. Uh, so that's the spot where if you're going to go back and read these papers, I think that that's actually a separate issue and not one that's all that concerning for classroom practitioners. Yeah, attending to prior knowledge, I read this and I wasn't challenged. I was I was like, oh yeah, this is harmony to a song we've been singing for a long time. And that song is teach them where they're at. And that is if if you if you planned a lesson with some reading comprehension levels that they don't have, then that lesson's gonna fail. So identify what, you know, when when you find out that information, recalibrate, find a different source. If reading comprehension is your goal, recalibrate that lesson, give them a different source and develop what they have. If you if they come into your classroom and for years and this is particularly relevant in when we're recalibrating our classrooms after all of the interruptions we've had with covid. I can't take for granted that they did the organelle of the cell model food model in middle school anymore because they were on zoom and they literally didn't do it. So they don't, I can't rely on the fact that they just have these like rote memorization of all of these different organelles for me to use in my college biology class. Cause they didn't do that. So I need to make sure that I'm not taking for granted what my students know at the beginning of my lessons. I think one thing that it, is difficult. I remember this was an area of growth for me in the middle of my, my classroom career is internalizing the deep foundational truth, the bedrock reality that I cannot build on something if it is not there. Yeah. And so starting off with, a, let's say, a pretest on organelles. Tell me everything you know about organelles. And they're like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Mr. My paper is blank. I, I can make up words. Like I, I really have nothing here. And if I, my assumption with the rest of the, that day's lesson was building on that initial familiarity of definitions, I got to stop right then and yeah. right there. Yeah. And like, that's, I don't know exactly what that's going to look like. And that's a level of improvisation that can be very difficult to do your first year. And that's, so you know what, we just, just get through, just get better, just respond to what you're seeing. But especially as we get more developed in our careers, we have to be able to be more committed to the reality that we cannot build on what is not there than we are to the lesson plan that we prepared, that we intended. Because I got pretty good at predicting what students were going to know walking in the door. But like you said, these are different years. Yeah. And so I would very well be surprised a pretty consistent amount of the time. And so being committed to the, well, we, that's not going to work because it is inconsistent with their prior knowledge. We have to choose responding to their prior knowledge as in, as teachers and we want to get the most out of that day. And so it's not just differentiation, but is responsiveness, responsive teaching. Sometimes the learning style approach can be given as advice when students have significant challenge in a particular classroom, but changing the quality of the information to oral won't assist student struggle when they do not have the background understanding to access that information. Well, have you tried some kinesthetic lessons about this? Now, the what can happen is that because you are trying new lessons, 
you end up giving them more experience with the material that allows them to start to construct an understanding. And so it feels like, oh, when I switched to kinesthetic for this student, things went better for me. But the fact of the matter is you're actually just uh, providing additional ways to access and build understanding of the content, familiarity, additional uh, exposures, opportunities to discuss it, opportunities to witness it. And yes, maybe hands-on opportunities. The variety of experiences is extremely valuable to the student. So because you made a switch, it may reinforce the misconception, but what you're actually doing is providing additional opportunities for the students to experience productive struggle. And this is something that I think uh, people who are advocates of discarding the learning styles myth would do well to sit with and to consistently think about is if I am in a school and I'm working with a group of teachers and I have one teacher who let's imagine she's in her second year, she's a relatively new teacher. And she's saying, you know what? I, I was steeped in learning styles research in my preparation program. And so I give this variety of experiences in every one of my lessons so that students can choose between them. And the reality is it's a highly multimodal lesson. And so being really careful about how we engage with teachers so that you don't tread on the trust and that you don't um, end up antagonizing folks who are in fact doing some really great things like providing multiple experiences, like providing different modalities for engagement. And yes, we still have to address the misconception and there's going to be a time and there's going to be a place for that. But if we treat it like a monster in the closet that requires aggression every time it comes up, all we're doing is destroying relationships with colleagues, and that's not productive. A lot of individuals are having success framing the learning style model because they go through additional experiences for all of their kids, and then their kids can choose to engage in all of those experiences. And if we don't lean in heavy to the label, you're one of these, so you do this, and you're one of those, so you do this. In fact, if we just take the label away and provide these opportunities for our kids, uh, we would, I think we would see a lot more engagement in in classrooms. Yeah, I think it's a spot where the the clarification that the pushback on learning styles is specifically against the meshing hypothesis. It is specifically trying to match students with preferences. That's a problem. That's no good. But the idea that we provide a, mul a multiplicity of experiences is great. Like, that's a great thing. And I don't know if we've been clear about this yet. When we say that's a problem, that's no good, just to make sure this is clear, when we do that and we measure, students do not show gains and sometimes show losses. Like, don't do it. Uh, as the title says, learning styles are false. Yeah, and not a benign falsehood. They, they damage your students' abilities to grow and improve. They give students a an excuse to say that, oh, well, I didn't do well in that classroom because all that teacher does is have discussions and dis and talk about things, and I'm a visual learner. When a different aspect may have been, I need to work on my listening comprehension skills, and that teacher should also be aware of this and also make choices to support those students' cognitive developments. Mm -hmm. So I'm actually really excited to talk about their second recommendation because I think it's the most impactful of the three as far as the opportunity to really improve classroom experiences broadly. 
what they describe is the importance of helping students think about and be intentional about their learning strategies throughout the lessons. And what they laid out with some of the research that, it, that, that exists in the body of work they cited was that it is important for students to identify a relatively small number of strategies because it is, it is entirely possible for students to be overwhelmed with too many effective strategies. And even though they all might be on their own research aligned and generally effective because of the contextual nature of practice, all of them together are too much and they are, they are a problem and they reduce student achievement. And so focusing on a relatively small number of effective strategies for learning and then really emphasizing high quality use of those strategies. And Mr. Woodruff, I got to tell you, I really thought of your classroom as I imagined what this looks like. And your pretest example is an excellent example of committing firmly to this idea of pre and post retrieval practice, and then demonstrating through your consistent use of time, your consistent use of feedback, your consistent use of support, the way that it shows up over and over and over again in the experiences that you're designing on a day-to-day -day basis so that students really understand what good looks like with that strategy. And so they can get a lot of yield out of that strategy. And that just, that resonated with me as somebody who sometimes, uh, I sometimes think about too many strategies. And so it was validating for me to be told very directly, focus, Michael Ralph, choose the couple of strategies that are going to be most appropriate for the course you're designing, and then help the students get really good at those strategies. Uh, along those ideas, years ago, I don't know, maybe seven years ago, you and I were having a discussion about just in terms of doing things, whether it be playing video games or teaching in a classroom, whether the philosophy should be sharpen your sharpest tool or, you know, uh, a patch up your weakest spot. Uh, and we were on different sides of that at the time. I was like, patch up my weakest spot. And you're like, no, sharpen your sharpest tool. It looks like having just a few sharp tools. Well, how do I rephrase it? Making sure your students are aware that they have a few sharp tools that they can use and help them develop a few sharp tools that they can use to navigate uh, their learning experiences. This suggests is the right way to do it, which means... Yes, students will be developing different skills to learn and navigate concepts, but they are skills that they can choose to develop without a label. Well, and I think that this is actually perhaps more intuitive than I have initially presented it because it aligns with a, a truism that came up in my classroom early on of if we're going to spend time learning this thing, we should use this thing. Uh, for example, I loved Nearpod as a classroom response tool. I really loved using it. And so we implemented it over and over and over again. And it would not make sense to train students to use some particular app for classroom response, use it exactly one time in the semester and never come back to it. That's that's silly. Like, why would we do that? And that's really what this recommendation is about, is if we're going to use some strategies, whether they be technology tools or just practices, whatever they are, 
if we're going to use them, we have to be prepared to devote enough time to them that we can get good at them and that we can use them. And that has a contextual factor. So like the number of strategies that a graduate student can use is fundamentally different than the number of strategies a first grader can use. So recognizing where your students are and when they're ready for a new tool and when they need to continue developing the tools they already have is that that's that's the job of each classroom teacher is to recognize and respond to what they're seeing. Uh, so the third one that they uh, ass- they asserted was a beneficial tool for promoting student learning and engagement was attending to students' interests. And they essentially identified two tiers of interest, situational interest and individual interest. And situational interest was that wow moment, that hook, that this is interesting. And for my personal life, I I liken that to Jurassic Park and Dolly of the 90s. I have an undergraduate degree in genetics, and I, I really have an undergraduate degree in genetics because those pop culture events were uh, mildly interesting. That's really why. Um, But now I am spending my mornings reading four hours of education research so that I could talk about it with my friend for zero compensation and no acknowledgement because I have an individual interest in developing my understanding of education psychology and informing my practice of doing so. And that journey is sort of a, a, a real conc- that's a personal example of my relationship with those. You can wow a kid and have them be super excited about this science experiment because man, there was an explosion and that was cool. And then the next day, you got nothing because they really don't care about chemistry. They cared about that explosion. And so as students develop competency and proficiency in these domains, we find that the opportunities for them to identify what is interesting to them increases because they can start assessing things that are happening within that domain, be it science or history, social studies, theater, whatever it is. They can see nuances as their depth and, and breadth of the, of the uh, subject increases. They can start making choices about where they're going to start going deep and where they're going to start driving their own inquiry. And you, we need to acknowledge and navigate both with our students. And that's, that's an interesting line to walk, I think, as an instructor, because of the ebb and flow of student engagement and student recognition and student sharing about what is resonant for them. And so if I have prepped this particularly compelling short story that we're going to read. And I know that every semester, it just, it's really interesting and it really, it's, it grabs attention. It's going to be one of those incidental moment to moment engagement uh, opportunities that is really just a wow factor in the classroom. And then being prepared for some students, that's going to resonate more strongly and they're going to keep thinking about it. And they're going to ask, Hey, can I do this next project? Can I write the next paper through the lens of that character and that short story, because I want to keep thinking about that and the potential that that is a seed that's going to grow into perhaps a lifelong passion for that student. And other students, that was Tuesday, and they're moving on. And it's great to have them fully engaged in that exercise. And then for the next topic, they can write a paper about soccer, because that's what they are actually passionate about. And that's what they want to write about. And so being able to balance the ebb and flow, the give and take of, I'm going to plan a really standout, you know, momentary engagement opportunity for Wednesday, 
that's going to catch a lot of people's attention because I'm really invested in making this discrepant event, this, this surprising experience. And then I'm going to provide some space for students to insert what's interesting to them. And some students might, that I might catch them from that momentary engagement. Other students will insert other things from other parts of their life. And then two weeks from now, we're going to have another big showy experience where I'm going to catch everybody's attention and some, some students will discover a new passion. And that give and take of putting something really compelling on a moment to moment basis while also making space for students to insert their interests, I think is a balance that just we, that we pursue with every class from semester to semester. In their concluding thoughts section, I was reminded of a quote that I recently came across. It's not a new quote. It's, it's, it's from Maya Angelou. Do the best you can until you know better when you know better, do better. And so if you have been an excited, invested, if learning styles has been one of your sharpest tools, it may hurt to have to say, I've got to take that tool out of the toolbox. That may hurt. But in the development of that tool, you've already done a lot of thinking about how you can use and create experiences for students to engage in multiple ways. And so this isn't a loss. This is a redirection. Let's start taking the self-identification. Let's start taking the preferences out. Let's start encouraging that when students are uncomfortable with reading, that's the place where they are able to develop more skill. And yes, you can also do this listening and discussion thing. And then we're going to couple it with this reading so that your reading skills can also improve. Uh, it's not that far of a change. It feels good to label, people feel comfortable like it's a blanket, but in the long run, it's hurting our students and we know better so we can do better. Listen, plan and play. For our second segment, we read Learning to Learn, Drawing Students' Attention to Ideas About Learning. This was written by Jared Cruz, Jesse Wilcox, and Jacqueline Easter. And this was published in The Clearinghouse, a journal of educational strategies, issues, and ideas in 2022. This paper was recommended to us by a listener. Colin Coulter, thank you for the recommendation. So I queued this paper because it was recommended by a listener and I second that thank you. I just love all feedback that we get from listeners. This is better together. But it is remarkable how well it aligns with our first segment. Yeah, entirely incidental and wonderful because the first segment is all about challenging misconceptions about beliefs about learning. And this paper is about, well, what should the beliefs of, about learning that we should be fostering? Uh, and so it, it's a nice answer. It's a nice answer. Uh, uh, these authors, Jared Cruz and Jesse Wilcox, were also graduated from the same education program that I graduated from, from the same professor several years ahead of me. That's amazing. I had no, I, I had no idea. So I know them, but they don't know me because I've attended professional development sessions that they gave and I was just a, a student in the audience. The first thing that I loved about this paper was in the opening sections they laid out such a succinct and clear and actionable list of what students ought to know about learning. 
I want to put it on a poster and hang it at my desk. Like it is an, it is an incredibly valuable list. Not only is it a good list about for students to know, it is a good, it's, you want to put this up in your classroom as a reminder to you so that when you have pressures to make maybe mistakes or, or prioritize conveniences or yield to external pressures that are not actually for your students learning, you have a reminder of, of like, well, actually, this is what learning is like. And so I'm not, I am not, this decision for students learning at the cost of some other priorities from outside of my classroom is worth making. Okay, we both want to read this list. Let's roll for it. I got a four. Two. All right, go ahead. Target learning beliefs should be, one, learning requires understanding. Two, learning takes time. Three, learning requires complexity and challenge. Four, everyone can learn. And five, learning is personal and social. And I think this list is useful because if I imagine myself in a classroom where I want to help students move beyond a conception of themselves as any given learning style of learner, one of the things I need to be prepared for is student responses to moving out of that established definition of themselves and that established expectation for what learning does or does not feel like. And a really good example of that can be, let us imagine that I have a 12-year-old learner in my room and they have this investment in themselves as a learner who reads. They're, they're a learner, everything they need to know they can get from reading. And if I come and I say, okay, you know what? That's actually, that's not that's not the way that it works. And I'm gonna ask you to, to move over here and work on this hands-on project over here. And they have, a, they have years of investment in that's not for them. Their reaction to that is going to be negative. And in fact, if they haven't practiced those sorts of activities, they're going to they're going to struggle quite a bit and so they could mistakenly interpret that struggle as reinforcement that that mechanism of learning is not for them and that this isn't working when in fact it is working and they are developing a skill that to that point has been underdeveloped and we need to as teachers be prepared to respond to that in productive ways so that students don't shut off and shut down and withdraw from those sorts of experiences. So we have to be ready for student pushback. One of the, when they talked about the desired learning belief, number one, learning requires understanding. In my mind, that evoked a phrase that I've been using for a long time, that recognition is different than knowing. That if you know something, you can pull it when it's relevant, when it's useful, when it's, uh, descriptive of the circumstances and can help communicate what's happening as opposed to recognizing when you're like, I know that this word goes here and I can get this right on a multiple choice or possibly fill in the blank, but I don't actually, I can't use this information to communicate or solve a problem. And if you have a classroom that allows them to succeed with um, recognition, then you are not communicating to them that learning requires understanding. One of the things that comes to mind here is an analogy that a mutual colleague of ours who is now retired uh, used pretty consistently that really resonated with me. 
uh, where he talked about some students who come into the classroom and they're like, you know what? I have gotten really good at riding a bicycle. I can, I can go really fast. Like I got, I've got the technique, I've got the form, I've got the routine. I am great at riding a bicycle. And he's like, yeah, that's all fine. We're here to get on a jet plane like that. That's a different thing. That's a fundamentally different thing. And it doesn't really matter how fast you can go on your bicycle. You can't get where we're going on a bicycle. You have to change your method of travel. And what uh, what I think might be interesting about this particular version of the analogy is standing and waiting at the airport doesn't feel like you're going anywhere yet. Yeah. And so helping students understand that the signals they're going to see and what it feels like and some of the routines that are going to be more aligned with research supported practices are going to fundamentally feel different. And eventually it's going to feel amazing when you start picking up speed and you start having this deep, robust understanding, you're going to get to that place of this is my favorite class. But if you're used to never not knowing an answer, life's going to be different initially. Yeah. Desired learning belief two, one of my favorites, learning takes time. Students may feel discouraged when they immediately do not understand something. And learning that people can create understanding at different rates can be valuable to students. But what really needs to be communicated to students is that you are a teacher in an environment where waiting for them to develop that understanding is a currency worth spending. One of the things that is hard, and I say this as somebody who has struggled and not always made decisions I feel good about, is again, once we accept in the bedrock of our soul, the truth that learning takes time, you can no longer, I think, say, you know what, we've got to cover this, we've only got one day to do it, so I'm going to lecture it at you, and then we're just going to move on. I, that communicates a message to students. And we can say whatever we want to say in the classroom, but our actions speak louder. We communicate our values with our time. Yes. And so even if it's one day, if we say learning takes time and then we turn around and say, but you know what, learn this in one day. That's disingenuous. Disingenuous or potentially hypocritical. And so, again, I say I'm, I'm thinking about my AP biology class. Like I have made some really difficult decisions in the past. If we don't have enough time to commit to all of our learning objectives, we have to narrow our learning objectives. Yes. Because the actual choice before us is do we learn some of those things or do we not learn things because we have moved too quickly? Because learning takes time. My number three, learning requires complexity and challenge. I have been using the phrase growth requires struggle for about a decade now. And that is exactly what this is. There is a misconception that learning should be fun. And I think more accurately, sometimes learning can be fun, but learning can be satisfied and worth celebrating even when at times it is not fun. There's got to be challenge. Growth requires struggle. And if students have the belief that learning should be fun, then as soon as it's not, it gives them a, a justification for checking out. On to number four. Everyone can learn. 
And this is a very straightforward, sweet section. This is growth mindset. That's what this is. That you can get better at what you know and what you can do. This is something that requires vigilance on our part as adults. Because we can spend semesters hanging growth mindset posters and insisting that everybody can do it. And it just does not take, it takes one comment of a, you know what? It's fine. Like this homework, like, you know, I'm going to give you the points because I know that, you know, this is hard for you. We'll move on. And that's, that's the ball game. That, that one comment. Yeah. You accidentally say I'm not a math person and you reinforce learning styles. Like, it's just, I just can't overstate, like, we have to be mindful of how we move through the world as models for students, because they're listening, and they're watching. The next set of learning beliefs, uh, and this is a two-parter, they got chunks together and then separated them, and that is learning is both personal and social learning is both personal and social and the personal aspect uh evokes some ideas about um motivation that were discussed in segment one that we want to help students mature from situational interest to individual interest and that sometimes means recognizing that you know, the situational tricks and the hot tips and the hooks and the and the like cool teacher tricks that you do to get the kids involved. That's great. That helps you get through that day. And, you know, they're 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 listening to what you have to say. But you have to at some point acknowledge that those are not enough to make lifelong learners because you need to foster the parts of the discipline that they are interested in. They need to have an avenue to communicate their relationship with the material. They need to have an opportunity. If they want to express, hey, and that could be just asking specific questions in class and giving them the time and the autonomy and space to acknowledge those questions. That may be all it is. And this is a spot where the authors specifically call out, but it resonated with me. And I want to read a whole second paper about how culturally responsive teaching plugs in in this particular place. Even if perhaps the teacher is not the only one speaking, if I'm not the only voice in the room, but the students are only ever responding to structures I provide, then they are limited to my perspective as a white man. The the second belief is that learning is social. The authors illustrate some scenarios where students felt impatient about the time in the classroom spent listening to other students speak when the teacher could just communicate the answers directly and we could move on. Why were we waiting for this time to hear other voices when there is an answer that is convenient that we could just acknowledge and accept and progress? Well, that position, of course, is a little bit dehumanizing doesn't acknowledge the value of time. We learn to improve our human situation. And uh, so it's worth communicating that our social interactions with our learning are valuable. We're in this together. 
How was the beer? Uh, I love this beer, which does not surprise me. I catch the bourbon on the front end strong. Like I smelled it. I poured it. I was like, oh, that's the bourbon barrel age that I've become familiar with um, from some of our early seasons. At the back end, I think that I do detect the cinnamon pretty prominently. And then I'm going to go out on a limb because I sort of neglected my opportunities to improve last season. I'm, I'm going to try to do better in this moment. In the middle, I think there's a fruit something. Okay. I'm going to say fig. I actually did. And maybe I was poisoned by the description as in like seeded by the description. But to me, it did taste right away like a warm cookie. It made me feel like a snickerdoodle, like a warm snickerdoodle. That's how I felt. Uh, yeah, I said a fruit. I maybe it's the caramel. Be. Is the fruit the caramel that you're tasting? It might be. But I think I actually like the sharper acidity and bolder uh, finish, the less sweet finish of the standard Dragon's Milk. Mm. So Dragon's Milk Reserve number two of four, apparently. Um, you are not my favorite Dragon's Milk. Thanks for listening, everybody. This has been a lot of fun. We really appreciate the listener contributions. And so if you have questions or comments or want to talk further, please reach out on our comments section on Two Pint PLC or shoot us an email. Reach out on Twitter uh, because this is better together. We want to improve. So as we pursue growth, discuss research, and struggle well.